Well, thank you so much, Jake. Uh, forgot how much I really, really like that song. Uh, I hope that was a, a, a special moment for you, and I really hope it's prepared you for what you are about to hear. Because I want to start off by telling you how bad fourth grade recess was. Uh, the fall uh, of my fourth grade year, I did what all the other boys did. I headed to the grass section where two boys would begin to pick teams so that we could play an epic game of football. But what was so rough about it was I was one of the shortest kids in my class. Plus, I also got glasses that year. And I'm just telling you, in 1983, glasses at Lowell Elementary School were not cool. And so I got picked one of the last kids. Not usually the very last, but there'd be like four or five of us standing there. And each team would already have about 18 kids on it. And you just felt so demoralized and just felt like you weren't good enough. I, I just wanted to be picked, you know, one time, first round, second round, third round, not be like an undrafted free agent who just gets tacked on at the end, knowing he's never going to touch the ball and have a chance to make a big play. Inside all of us is this fourth grader who wants to be chosen. There, there's something about just being picked that, that when we get selected, we feel like we have worth, like we're loved, like we're wanted, like we're of value, like we have something to give. And so we want to be elected the student body president. We, we want to have that boy ask us out to the prom or that, that girl to say yes to our promposal. We, we want the company to say yes to hiring us or to give us the promotion. We just want to be selected because then we feel like we have something of worth. Today, we're going to see Jesus in Mark chapter 3 be completely swamped and surrounded by people. And out of the throng, he's going to select 12 different people. But what we're going to find out today is that selection, it, it wasn't quite what they maybe thought it was in the moment. It, it wasn't the, hey, you have such great worth. In fact, we're going to see today that the selection of Jesus actually should humble us. Kind of what Bridget was talking about in Kids Creek. And yet, we're going to also see that not only are we to be humbled when God calls us, but that actually should instill us with confidence because God wants to change the world through you. So today, we're going to understand, yeah, to be chosen by God, it actually should humble us, but at the same time, it should instill us with confidence to go and make a difference. So as we get ready to go to Mark 3, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that today you would be our teacher. Uh, you've already embedded these truths into Mark 3 long before any of us ever were breathing uh, uh, air on this earth. And these words will be here long after our air has stopped. So Lord, would you help us to not take today's message and twist it to what we want it to say? Rather, would you twist us to come into conformity with what you have already been saying? Lord, would you humble us today? But would you also simultaneously instill us with confidence because you want us to go and to be a blessing to a world that needs you. And so Lord, help us to see that loud and clear through your scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, today, as we continue in our series in Mark, we are in Mark chapter three. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Mark chapter three. If you're not quite sure where Mark is, up on the screen is a nice little cheat sheet, kind of give you a guide of where you can go in Mark. If you're a first time guest with us, we highly encourage you, get a Bible into your hands. At Riverwood, we really do not care if it's a paper Bible or a digital Bible on your phone. We just want you to have one. Uh, and so uh, next time you come to Riverwood, make sure you have a Bible. We're gonna have the scripture up on the screen 
screen so that in case you don't have anything, you can still read along. But we really encourage you, get a Bible in your hand. That way you get into the practice of no, not only opening it on Sundays, but it makes it just a little bit easier to open it on Monday and on Tuesday and every day. Uh, today we're going to be doing Mark 3, 7 through 19. So we're going to break it up into two chunks. So let's do 7 through 12. Let's begin with Mark 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Last week, we began uh, our, our message by looking at the topics of fasting and the Sabbath. But as we had that discussion, seeing Jesus redefine those two things, we saw him heal a guy in, on the Sabbath in the synagogue of a shriveled hand. But that was not the first miracle that we saw Jesus perform. I mean, we're only up to Mark 3, and already we've seen Jesus uh, cast a demon out of a guy in the synagogue. We've uh, seen him heal Peter's mother-in-law from a fever. We saw him spend an entire evening in Capernaum outside of Peter and Andrew's home healing people. Uh, he went to another community and healed a leper. He came back to Capernaum, and he healed a guy who was paralyzed and was lowered through a hole in the roof. I mean, Jesus has been doing all of these healings and the word has spread. And so people are coming around. And did you notice, Mark began to help us see, it wasn't just now around Capernaum. Like people were coming from all sorts of different areas and regions to come and see this amazing miracle worker. It's like Jesus is, is, is more popular than a Michael Jordan or, or an Elvis or maybe even combined. Everyone wanted to be around this guy. In fact, notice what he said there, that it's a great crowd this great crowd was coming and they were pressing in. In fact, uh, Robert Gundy in his uh, 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 commentary on the New Testament, he says that the Greek should be translated a multitudinous multitude. I mean, so many people. Mark is letting us know there aren't just dozens there. There aren't even hundreds. There are like thousands. There is a multitudinous multitude and they are pressing in on Jesus, wanting to just touch him. Uh, when Leanne and I were living in Venezuela, working at a school for missionary children, there was a, a Venezuelan senator who was from the, the town where our school was located, El Rubio. It was located in Táchira, a state kind of on the western side of Venezuela, right next to Colombia. And even though Táchira was kind of a smaller state, it had actually produced several presidents. And so this uh, well-liked, well-respected senator announced he was going to be running for president. And he wanted to kick off his campaign in his hometown, in Rubio. Well, he didn't want to just have a stage, walk on stage and make his announcement at some big rally. He wanted to walk into town. Apparently there was some Venezuelan politician who'd done something like this. And so he wanted to emulate this famous Venezuelan steps. He was going to walk into town. And so a bunch of us from the school wanted to kind of go and see this historic moment. So we drove out near the parade route and we found a perfect parking spot. Uh, we, uh, Rubio is kind of in the, set in the mountains there. And so we were kind of up just a little bit right above the road. The road was only maybe 10, 12 feet down below us. And we had a perfect view to see where they would come around the bend. And after what felt like forever, 
Finally, there was some commotion. And sure enough, up ahead, he began to come around with what I could only describe as bodyguards around him to help keep the crowds away. Now, like a typical politician, he's trying to touch everyone. He's trying to shake hands and greet everyone, kiss the babies, as these bodyguards are trying to keep people pressed away. Well, as they began to come down towards us, the crowd begins to surge in. Everyone just wants to touch this favored son. And there became a moment where I was close enough, I could see his face and he had a look of terror because no longer was he in control of where he was going. The crowd began to move him as they pressed in and crushed him. Suddenly you could see he was afraid. And for probably about a good 15, maybe 30 seconds, the crowd was in control before the bodyguards were finally able to exert control, get people back, and they could continue on their way into town. Jesus planned just a little bit better than this Venezuelan politician because he knew the people wanted to probably press in and crush him. So he told his disciples to have a boat ready. Uh, back in the book of Luke, I think it's in Luke 5, there's a, a, a story where Jesus steps into a boat and just steps away from the shore and begins to preach to the crowds. The water would act as a natural amplifier. His, the sound of his voice would just carry and the people could spread out and they could see him and hear him. And so Jesus is prepared because this multitudinous multitude is pressing in. They want his attention. If Mark were writing this today, I think he would say that Jesus was going viral. Uh, we talked a few weeks ago that when you go viral, you need to do what uh, our culture would say is seize the stage. In other words, if you're going viral, you need to put out a podcast or put together a book. Uh, you need to do the talk show circuit. You, you, you need to do something to capitalize on the momentum that you have. Because when you begin to get some fame, if you seize the stage, that means money. That means prestige. It means power. It means influence. But what does Jesus do when he suddenly has all this attention? He goes up on a mountain. Uh, pick it up in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. In Luke chapter 6, we see Jesus right before this moment where he selects his disciples go up onto the mountain, and he spends the entire night praying. And after praying to the Father, he knows these are the 12 guys that I'm going to select out of this multitudinous multitude. I want you to take a moment and think about what that moment was like for those 12. I mean, here's this famous, powerful rabbi who teaches unlike anyone else you've ever heard, but now he's doing all of these miracles. And he now wants you on his team. I mean, this is like the dream of every fourth grader at recess except if these guys really thought it through, they really weren't the best. You see, back in Jesus's day, there were these rabbis who would have students, these disciples. It was kind of like they had their own little rabbi school. And to get into their school, a student would have to approach the rabbi and basically say, I, I want to be in and apply. And then they would start to be quizzed and grilled. Are you good enough to get in? And so the best of the best had already been accepted into everyone else's rabbi schools. 
These guys were the castoffs, the leftovers. They weren't good enough to get into other rabbi schools or they maybe just didn't even have the, the interest in it. And now suddenly they're getting in to this famous rabbi school. I mean, so this is like probably in their mind, one of the greatest moments of their life up to this point. But if they'd really stopped to think about it, the best in their society had already been selected while they were off in their fishing boats. Like the, the brightest of their, their society were being fawned over by the Jewish elite while they were in tax booths serving the Roman government. These guys were really nobodies. They, they, in the society that they were in, they really did not matter. Let me prove it to you. Right now, close your Bible. Turn off your, your phone if you have it on. If you got the Bible tab open there, click over to the notes or the chat. I don't want any cheating. All right, so Bible's closed. Now, would you name for me the 12 disciples? You can't do it, can you? I mean, sure, yeah, you, you probably could get Peter. Uh, he's kind of one of the more famous ones. Maybe you got James and John, the two brothers. Maybe you could remember, oh yeah, Peter's had a brother, Andrew. So you got Peter and Andrew. Maybe you, if you're thinking hard, you think, oh yeah, yeah, Judas Iscariot, he d betrayed Jesus. Okay, so now, now we're up to five. Oh yeah, we've also looked at Levi. Okay, so Levi, Matthew, okay, that's, that's six. Um, I mean, maybe if you really know your Bible well, maybe you got yourself up to eight, maybe nine. But you can't get all 12. I mean, we know our fantasy football teams better than we know the 12 people that God used to change the world. Why do we not know them? Because they truly were the unknown. I mean, these guys were not the best. I mean, just for instance, let's, let's look at Peter. Uh, Peter was, uh, he was brash. He was loud. Uh, when he was born, he was named Simon. But in verse 16, it says that Jesus gave him a nickname, calls him Peter, which means rock. Jesus was not wrong, but Peter was definitely not a rock at that time. There's a famous story of Tommy Lasorda, the, the famed uh, manager for the Los Angeles uh, Dodgers, was there for a number of years. And back in the 80s, uh, they had this uh, young pitcher get called up from the minors. And Tommy Lasorda wanted to kind of see his arm, so he put him in a game. And he said this kid's arm was really live. Like he really threw the ball hard. He had good placement. But this kid had no, like, he was so timid on the mound. And it just drove Tommy Lasorda crazy. He knew this kid is going to get absolutely crushed if he doesn't, like, somehow stiffen up and, and become, like, stronger in just who he is on the mound. So apparently, after the game or, or a week or two, Tommy Lasorda supposedly pulled this guy into his office and just starts saying, from now on, your name is Bulldog. Like, I want you to pitch like a bulldog. I want you to think of yourself like a bulldog. I want you to walk like a bulldog. You are hereby bulldog. And the nickname worked. A bulldog went on to pitch 18 seasons in the major leagues. Uh, three of those, he was named an all-star. In 1988, he led the Dodgers to the World Series where they won, and he was named the World Series MVP. And to this day, Oral Hershiser, the bulldog, owns the longest stretch of innings without giving up a run at 59 and a third. The nickname worked. When Jesus nicknames Peter, Rock, in a sense, begins to work. 
Because Peter was so all over the place. He, he, he thought too highly of himself. He was not a reliable individual. He was not a rock. But through the work and discipleship of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, Peter becomes that rock that the church needs. And he ends up being the one who, when the, the, the Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost, he stands up and preaches the gospel. And it is that gospel message of Jesus' death and resurrection that becomes the foundation for the church. He became the rock. But he wasn't at the time. At the time, he was just an everyday, normal guy. Or, or take James and John. These two brothers, the sons of Zebedee, they, they got a nickname, Sons of Thunder. Uh, James is always mentioned first, so we assume he was the older son. And throughout scripture, we, we really don't see John ever talk on his own. It's always James and John say. So we kind of think John was a little quieter. But these two guys were passionate. But out of their passion, they were power hungry. It was James and John who approached Jesus and said, can we sit at your right and left hands when you take your throne? It was James and John who said, hey, can we call down fire on this town because it was really rude to you? These guys were power hungry. They weren't the best. These aren't the kind of guys that you want to start a movement based on meekness and love. Or we could look at Matthew, who had been a tax collector, one of the most untrusted, hated individuals in the society. And yet, he worked for the Roman government. And I'll contrast him with Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot, part of the Zealots, they were an anti-Rome group that they were looking to like, even in violent ways, try to overthrow the Roman government and free Israel. This was such a hodgepodge collection. And yet they were a bunch of nobodies. In fact, John MacArthur wrote an entire book about the 12 disciples. And the title of his book, 12 Ordinary Men. That's what these guys were. Just plain ordinary. And yet this shouldn't surprise us a bit because God throughout all of history has been doing this. This is his pattern of ministry. Uh, he chose Joseph who went through slavery and imprisonment before he ever assumed the second in command of Egypt. He, he chose Gideon while he was still hiding in a cave. He chooses David, who was the youngest of his family. He chooses Mary, a, a no one, teenage, unwed girl, to become the mother of the Messiah. And he chooses Bethlehem, a small little town, to become the birthplace for his son. And he chooses Nazareth, a place with a bad reputation, as the place for his son to grow up. God seems to find delight in choosing that which looks weak, that which looks frail, that which is the unexpected. Paul begins to write about this in his first letter to the church in Corinth. This is 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. In other words, think about when you came to know Jesus. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Paul's basically saying, this is God's pattern. He chooses that which looks foolish in the eyes of the world. The guys that, that would not be accepted on the team. It's like God saying, hey, I'm going to play football with you guys, but there's 30 here. Why don't you, the other captain, why don't you take, pick the first 15 and I'll take the rest? God always seems to take the leftovers because he knows what he can do. And that's what Paul goes on to say, verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast 
in the presence of God. Many years ago, my family went on a vacation to Michigan to visit some very close friends. We'd met them during our time in Venezuela. And so we traveled out there. And I remember one evening, I think uh, my, my wife and, and uh, uh, my, my friend Leo, his wife, Michelle, was in the kitchen. I think they were with a couple of kids getting dinner ready. And I'm out in the living room and I'm watching a couple of kids. And I have no idea where Leo is. When all of a sudden he walks into the room and he's carrying with him the staff and he's got his Bible in the other hand and he sits down on the other end of the couch from me and I give him a look like, what are you up to? And he proceeds to read from his Bible in Exodus chapter four, where Moses takes his walking stick and approaches the burning bush where the voice of God begins to come out. And through that burning bush, God says, throw your staff down. And so it's, Moses does. He throws it down on the ground and it turns into a snake. And, and Moses backs up. He's scared. And then God says, all right, now grab it by its tail. And Moses is fearful because when you grab a snake by the tail, it can turn around and, and get you. But he obeys. He does so. And it turns back into a staff. Leo then closed his Bible and he looked over at me. And he says, Aaron, you, you also know that Moses took his staff and he struck a rock and water poured forth. You know that he raised it up in the air and the Red Sea parted so the people could walk through. You, you also know that Aaron had a staff and it actually budded out uh, leaves, branches. But Aaron, let me ask you a question. Was there anything special about the, the staff? And I responded to Leo. I said, well, no, it was just wood. And Leo said, exactly. You, Aaron, are an ordinary individual, but through you, God can do extraordinary things. And so I have this staff up in my office on the wall to remind me that I am just an ordinary guy, but if I will surrender myself to God, he can do extraordinary things through me because that is God's pattern. He chose Peter. He chose James. He chose Levi. And he chose me. And he chose, chooses you. And so the fact that God chooses us, it should do a couple things in us. To be called by God, to be called to follow, it should first humble us. Like we should come to the realization that I'm not so great and awesome in and of myself. If, if I was so great and awesome, God probably wouldn't have called me. But the fact that God called me means that I'm not so hot in and of myself because it's only those that God chooses that he works through. I mean, take a moment and think about it. If you were trying to sell a uh, weight loss product, would you show just images in your advertising of really skinny women and really buff guys? Well, no, because most people would look at those and go, yeah, right, those people have never dieted a day in their life. No, you show the person who has to work 50 hours a week, who's trying to raise their 2.5 kids, who's struggling to pay their bills and also struggles with their weight. And you show what they looked like before they started your weight loss product and then what they look like after so that the everyday average person can look at it and go, I have hope. If they can do it, I can do it. And that is why God continues to choose the Peters and the Levi's and me because it's going to give him the glory and it's going to show everyone that God loves them. So when we realize that God chooses us, it absolutely deeply should humble us. There should be no pride-filled, big-headed Christians. As Bridget taught, if Jesus could get down on his knees and wash the feet of his disciples, their dirty, stinking, yucky feet, then there's nothing below 
us. So we need to be humble. But yet also the fact that God calls us, it should instill us with confidence. The call to follow Jesus should instill us with confidence because God is choosing us saying, I can do more in you and through you than you could ever imagine. And so we don't rely on our talents, on our intelligence, on our wealth. We rely on him who can give us the talent, who can give us the intelligence, who can give us the wealth to accomplish his mission, to help people find Jesus and follow him. So yes, the call to follow Jesus, it should absolutely humble us, but it should also instill with us confidence, not in ourselves, but in him who calls us. Then the third thing that I think that the call to follow Jesus brings it's a reminder that to be called by Jesus is to be sent. If you still have your Bible open there, open it up there to Mark 3, verse 14. It says that Jesus appointed the 12, whom he also named disciples, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. When, so often when we think of this idea of following Jesus, we, we imagine like we're with him all the time. And after all, in Matthew 28, Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And so the idea of following Jesus is this idea that I'm always with him. I mean, he's an omnipresent God. So wherever we go, he's there with us. But sometimes what we forget is not only are we with him, but we're also to be sent by him. That, that word apostle, it means sent one. It means you are my representative. And while the office of apostle was closed with the original apostles, there's still this idea to be a, a follower of Jesus means to live like him. And Jesus was sent by the Father. So just as the Father sent Jesus, so he sends us. We are to be sent into the world to go and be a blessing. And what do we take with us? The, the gospel. We are to preach the gospel with our words. We are to preach it with our presence. We're to preach it through our actions. Because this world desperately needs to know about the love of God as shown through the cross and the empty grave. And so we are to go to these people. And, and so what we need is to be humbled by this realization that, that, that we are not as great as we may think we are. But at the same time, we can't think so low of ourselves because God can do so much through us. So we need to let him lift us up and instill us with confidence so that we can go to people who need to hear about Jesus. We began 2020 with 21 days of fasting and prayer. <laughs> Maybe we should do it again. I don't think any of us suspected we'd be in a pandemic. But during those 21 days of fasting and prayer, we encouraged you, if you're part of the Riverwood family and you're a follower of Jesus, to just find one person that God has already put in your life that you deeply care about, but doesn't know Jesus. And we just invited you to begin to pray for them throughout 2020, praying that God would open their eyes to their need for Jesus and that their lives would be radically changed by the gospel. And so I just want to ask you, during this pandemic, have you reached out? Have you gone to them? Are, are you continuing to pray for them? Because God has called you to follow him. And part of following him is to be sent by him. And you are sent to your one. So I want to remind you to pray for that person, to reach out. might need to be over Zoom. It might need to be over text. But just check in. See how they're doing. Let them know you love them. Find a way to serve them. And who knows? God might create an avenue for you to also share the gospel in your words. And they may put their faith in Jesus, just like you have. And it will be kind of their mountaintop moment where Jesus stands on the, the mountaintop and selects them to be his disciple. 
So may you be humbled by the call to follow Jesus. May you be instilled with confidence to follow Jesus. But may you also go and be a blessing telling people about Jesus. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would accomplish this in our lives for your glory. This is what you call us to. God, forgive us for the times that we've just thought the idea of of following you is just merely to be in your presence, to be with you. But there was an and there. We are also to be sent. And so God, help us to be the type of people that go, that we serve and we are a blessing to our community, that we are the the first to volunteer, to help, to, to make a difference, to reach out to our neighbor, to do things that maybe even no one else will see but you. But this world needs this. So help us to be willing to take up the mantle and follow you. May we not just be like the throngs that merely want a glimpse of you. May we not be the people who just want to be on your team. May we be the people who, knowing on your team, we are being sent to make a difference in the world. So God, do this in us for your glory, because I know it will bring us joy. And Lord, I pray for the person that is watching this and listening to this, that does not know you, I pray that right now they would hear your call, that they would surrender their life to you, realizing that, Jesus, you gave your life for them, so they now give their life to follow you, that their identity would begin to change. They would no longer be a spiritual orphan. They would become your son, your daughter, and that they would take up this identity. And by following you, it would humble them. It would no longer become about their life, but instead they'd be instilled with confidence to go in your name, to seek to make a difference, and to change the lives of those you've put them around. So God, hear their prayer. Change their life. Make them your son or daughter now. And God, I just pray for Riverwood as a whole. As we have been separated through this pandemic, as we have been in our own homes, unable to gather in person on Sundays, unable to gather in our growth groups through the week, Lord, continue to protect the unity of this church and continue to call us to trust you and to follow you. And Lord, help us to even reach out to one another, to realize part of being sent is also to be sent to each other. You've put us in this church family for a reason. And Lord, we ask that you'd also continue to grow this church family. We believe that there are people in our region who need you, and we want to be the people who are sent to them. So send us to them and send them to us. And Lord, give our leaders wisdom as we look at at gathering back together in person. Help us to know the right timing in that. May you work as you need to in this family for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Again, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Again, happy Mother's Day. And I want to send you with a benediction that you would go and follow Jesus. You would go and be a blessing. Thank you so much.